0: Let's pray again as we come to read from God's holy word. Lord God, we thank you that you are not a God who remains quiet, but you are a God who speaks. You are a God who reveals yourself to us. And I pray as we read from Matthew chapter 20, you would speak to us. You would reveal more of yourself to us, that we would be changed by your grace as John prayed earlier, that we would meet with you through your word and through the word preached. So move Holy Spirit in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we're continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew and today's sermon is called A Mother's Request and it will become very obvious very quickly why it's called that. So I'm going to read to you Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 to 28. Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 to 28 and hopefully you'll be able to see that on the screen. It's bright in here today, which is great, but let me read to you Matthew 20, 17 to 28. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In verse 20 of that passage the mother of James and John, who were disciples, in a sense prays, doesn't she? She comes before Jesus, she falls on her knees and she asks Jesus for something. It's, it's, it's like a prayer moment, isn't it? Apart from Jesus is there in the flesh and she's praying to him, um, asking him for something in this moment. And this is what she's asking. Jesus, in your kingdom, may my sons have seats of honour. I want John to be your right-hand man and I want James to sit on your left. May my sons sit next to you and feast in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that you are establishing, the kingdom that is to come. And actually there are many things to be admired in this woman as she asks this of Jesus. The reverence and honour she shows to Jesus as she falls on her knees. She she really is one who honours Jesus Christ. She's clearly a compassionate mum. She's not asking for herself, but she's, she's asking on behalf of her sons. And this is, I mean, not only because I'm male, but this is the other reason why I'm not a mum. It's because I would be like, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand, please, uh, in the kingdom of heaven? But she's compassionate upon her children. She cares about her sons and so she's asking on their behalf. She's also showing great faith, isn't she? She has faith in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. She's not saying, oh Jesus, if you're successful in establishing your kingdom on earth, it would be quite nice if if my sons could sit next to you. No, she's saying, I I know you're establishing your kingdom, I know your kingdom has come, I know you are the king, and I want my sons to sit on your right and your left. So she's showing great faith. She's not asking for riches in this life, but she's praying and, and focusing on the kingdom of Christ to come. And in fact, this lady shows her faith throughout the Gospels. She is even there at the crucifixion, at the cross. She is watching Jesus. Many of her disciples uh, ran away and and didn't go with Jesus all the way to the crucifixion, but this lady did. She was there looking upon her Saviour, dying for her upon the cross. And so I want to begin by bringing a challenge for you if you're a mother. And I want to encourage you To pray for your children with the reverence, compassion and faith of this lady. Fall on your knees before Jesus and lift up your children to God in prayer. Have faith that God loves your children even more than you love them. And that he will do good things for them and he will respond to your prayers. I know mums do. I know my mum does so much for me, even, even now I live um, quite a long way from her. She's still doing things for me and still blessing me and loving me. And I know that the mums in this church do so much for their children, but please never neglect prayer for your kids. Daily bring them to Jesus and ask for him to draw them close and bring them safely into his kingdom. And, and of course, this isn't just a challenge for the mums in the church. This is a challenge for every single one of us. The young people in this church are growing up in a largely secular world. They're told to believe that Christianity is laughable rather than believable, and they're actually taught That Christianity is hateful because of the biblical stances on some of the things that we believe. And so that our young people are growing up in a world where it's difficult to believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They have huge temptations to abandon him, huge temptations to go a different way and follow the way of their, their peers, their friends who are leading them astray to go into the world and to reject Jesus. They ha- they face that temptation on a daily basis, so we must pray for them. We must be lifting them up to Jesus Christ. We must be trusting them to God in prayer. If you love this church, you will pray for the children in our midst. That is an act of love, and so I really want to encourage us to be prayerful for the young people in this church. Let's come with reverence before Jesus. Let's come with compassion upon those around us. Let's come with faith, the faith of this mum, and pray for the children in Christ's church, Pharaoh. Now, having praised this mother, there is also something quite naive about her request and it also feels a little bit to me like James and John have kind of gone come on mum can you go and ask Jesus for us please we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven we want to to can you just go and say something to Jesus for us you know maybe pull at his heartstrings a bit you're a a mum he'll listen to you that's what I think might be going on here so I think there's something naive and I think that James and John are probably targeting greatness in the kingdom they want to be great they want to be important and they're perhaps asking their mum to ask on their behalf. And the reason I say that there's something naive about her request is because look at how Jesus responds in verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. And again, I want to draw parallels with our own prayers. I think this is often the way God responds to our prayers. We come to Jesus and we ask for something. And I think God the Father in heaven and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are going, Duncan, you do not know what you're asking for. You're so naive, Duncan. You're asking for this. And actually, I've got way better things for you than what you're asking for. I wonder whether you've ever prayed for something and you thought you haven't got an answer to that prayer request. And I wonder whether God was saying, actually, you don't understand what you're asking for. You don't understand the consequences of what you're praying Praying for, and I have a better story. I have a better answer to your prayer than what you're asking for. You know, sometimes we pray for healing and we ask God and we come with faith. There's not, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. That's an excellent thing to do. But God says, You don't know what you're asking for. I'm going to use this person to glorify me by persevering through what they have, through what they're struggling with. And actually the pain in their life is going to draw them closer to me. It's it's almost a blessing because they're going to come and be in relationship with me. You don't know what you're asking for. It's better this way, at least for a season, at least for a time. So I'm I'm going to wait before I answer that prayer, perhaps. Maybe you've prayed for a new job and said, Oh, this job's just so perfect. I really want it, Lord. Can I have this job? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. I've got something. I've got a purpose for you in this job. I want to use you here. And actually, even if you went and did that job, you would hate it. Um, you know, I, I, I think I've probably shared this before, but there was one time where there was a job which was in Wembley Stadium. I worked, I worked in marketing before I led the church. And um, there was this job that was marketing football um, based in Wembley Stadium. And I thought, wow, this is, the mo- this is just a fantastic job. I mean, marketing football, everyone knows about football anyway, so there's not really a job to do. You just get to go to work at Wembley Stadium, and there. Was, and I had my interview in a box overlooking the pitch, and I was, you know, I was probably quite distracted during the interview, just looking out over this awesome pitch. I thought this was the perfect job for me, um, and I prayed for it, and prayed for it, and prayed for it, and prayed for it. I even prayed with a, a, a kind of group, and everyone was like, yeah, this is so perfect for you, Duncan. You'd be great at this job, and then I didn't get the job, and I was... I was like, God, what are you doing? I don't want to work for Mothercare anymore. I want to work at Wembley Stadium. Um, God said, Duncan, you don't know what you're asking for. Actually, I had impact on the ladies who I was working with at Mothercare. I was able to share Jesus Christ with them. And actually a few months after that, I had a really strong call from God to go to Bible college and to study and to start the journey into church leadership. And you know what, if I'd ended up with that job at Wembley Stadium, I wouldn't have gone to Bible college or at least not immediately then. I wouldn't have moved to Fairham to plant this church. And so all of that, Jesus like, Duncan, you don't know what you're asking for. You're asking for me to not plant a church in Fairham in whatever year. So I'm grateful that when we pray, we pray to one who has far greater wisdom than we do. We pray to one who knows all the consequences of answering that prayer. And sometimes in his love, he says, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to do that for you. I love you. And sometimes he goes, you don't know what you're asking for. I've got something better for you. So don't give up give up praying. Keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, but always pray with that humility knowing you're praying to one with greater wisdom than you. So Jesus says, "You don't know what you're asking for," to this lady. And in this story, the reason the mum doesn't know what she's asking for is something to do with a cup. It's something to do with the cup. That's the reason she doesn't understand what she's asking for. Do you see in verse 22, Jesus doesn't actually address the mum. He talks to the boys. He talks to James and John and says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And James and John say, yeah, we can do it, which I think is a pretty naive response, actually, because when I explain to you the cup that Jesus is referring to, then you know, maybe if James and John fully understood the cup that Jesus was talking about, they would have said something different. What cup is Jesus talking about in verse 22? Well, I want to go to the Old Testament and read you some verses about a cup. Isaiah 51, verse 22. God says, Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord There is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. You see, in the Old Testament, there is repeated references to a cup and it's described as the cup of wrath, the cup of foaming wine, the bowl of wrath, which sounds even bigger than a, than a cup. And that's just three. I've just read to you three Old Testament references. I could have gone on for much longer reading from the Old Testament references to this cup of wrath, a cup of God's judgment poured out upon the wicked. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of a cup. In verse 22, this is what Jesus endured on the cross. There's a reason this story comes after verses 17 to 19, when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be handed over to sinful men, I'm going to die. Because this cup was what Jesus endured on the cross. Imagine God's wrath upon all the sin in the world throughout all of history poured into one cup all the murders god's anger all murder poured into a cup all the wars God's anger upon the evil of war poured into this cup. All the abuse, all the hate, all the violence, all the slander, all the lies, all the greed, all the selfishness. God is just and God is good. He hates evil. So imagine all his wrath poured into this cup all the evil that's ever happened in the history of mankind. This one cup of foaming wine this cup of staggering, this bowl of wrath. And as you start to imagine that, you're starting to get a sense of what Christ endured upon the cross. Because as Jesus died upon the cross, he carried the sins of the world upon himself. He, in a sense, took up this cup of wrath and downed it, drinking to the last dreg, to the last drop. Why did he do that? Why did he die that death upon the cross? Why did he drink this cup of wrath so that you and me wouldn't have to endure the punishment that our sins deserved? Somewhere in that cup was the things that we personally have done wrong and the wrath of God upon the things that we had done wrong. And Jesus, because he loved you, drank the cup so that you didn't have to. I feel when I teach about the cup of wrath that I have to bring a warning that if you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you're not a believer in his death upon the cross, God's cup of wrath will one day be poured over your head. And so I urge you to believe and turn and believe in Christ and receive mercy. Enter into this place of forgiveness that Christians enjoy. Otherwise, what will come upon you is a terrible, terrible thing. And if you are a Christian, then just be moved deeply in your heart and soul at what Christ has done for you. Marvel again at his love for you upon the cross in drinking this cup and worship him because he has given you mercy. You deserve to drink the cup of wrath, but instead there's a cup of wonderful wine waiting for you in the kingdom of Christ. You will sit at Christ's temple and drink with him in joy. In that sense, in reference to the cup of wrath, James and John, of course, could not drink this cup. Jesus says, could you drink the cup that I'm going to drink for? In one sense, James and John, of course, they couldn't drink from that cup. But surprisingly, in verse 23, what does Jesus say to James and John? You will drink my cup. Now, he might just be referring to that cup in heaven when they are sat at this dinner table. But I think he's saying something more here. Because there is a sense in which all disciples of Christ share in Christ's sufferings. There is a sense in which all disciples of Christ share in Christ's suffering. A Christian, when they become a Christian, says, I have faith in eternal life and in the age to come. I therefore give myself to serving Jesus, even if that results in suffering and, persecution. and so there's moments in Paul's letters where he, he seems to be saying, I'm enduring something of what Christ endured. Obviously not the whole of what Christ endured, because no one can endure the whole of what Christ endured, only Jesus Christ. But as Christians, Paul, uh, Paul says, I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. I'm enduring persecution because I'm a believer in Christ. And all of us, as Christians, when we become a Christian, so we're following Jesus and he becomes our example to follow. And so it must be fair to say that every Christian will at some point endure suffering and persecution because we're following Jesus Christ. And this happens to James and John. It happens to these guys. Do you know, James doesn't even last past Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12 verse 2, James is killed by King Herod with the sword. And it says in Acts that he was killed simply for belonging to the church. That's why he dies. He doesn't live very long after this episode. He, in a sense, drunk a little bit of a cup of suffering, persecution, because he was a follower of Jesus. And John was the writer of the Gospel of John and also the writer of the book of Revelation. And he says in Revelation that he's in prison, he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and he's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John lives a much longer life but he endures suffering and persecution because of his faith in Jesus. He ends up in exile, in prison. And there he has this amazing vision that Jesus gives to him and he writes the book of Revelation down. James and John did truly drink from Jesus's cup in a sense. Not the full cup of wrath, but they suffered under persecution. I want to ask you a very important question. Brothers and sisters, do you have such faith in Jesus that, you would endure persecution for his sake, perhaps even die for Christ. Is that where your faith is at? Do you have that level of belief in Jesus? That if we entered, if if something changed dramatically in this country right now, and actually it was illegal to be a Christian, it was illegal to follow Christ, you would still follow him, you would still pray, you'd still believe in him, you'd still trust in him. Would you, do you have that faith in Jesus? Would you share Christ's cup Because you have faith in the eternity to come. The eternal paradise to come. James and John suffered particularly because they were evangelistic. Because they went on a mission to share the good news of Jesus with others. That's why James was put to the sword. That's why John was in exile on an island. They endured great discomfort and took big risks to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you follow their example? We don't risk imprisonment or death right now in this country, praise God. But we must be prepared to risk embarrassment, negative reactions, perhaps even rejection from friends and family because we dare to share Jesus with those people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. And so I'm preaching to myself here. I'm praying for bolder faith. I'm praying for more faith in my life and less comfort because I'm following Jesus. And I don't mind going through persecution in this life. I don't mind suffering in this life because I know there's a kingdom to come where there'll be no more suffering, no more death, no more sorrow. And that's going to be amazing. I can't wait to get there. But I'm following Jesus, my Saviour. I'm praying more faith, less comfort. I'm not praying and asking for persecution. Don't hear me, but I'm not saying, Lord, would you change the state of the United Kingdom so we are persecuted? I'm not praying that at all. But I'm saying, Lord, I don't mind being having a little bit of discomfort in my life. I want to follow you boldly. I want to follow you closely. Would you give me greater faith? I don't want to live in my comfort zone, but I want to follow you, Jesus. So Jesus says to James and John, you will drink my cup, but the places at my right and my left have been prepared for someone else by God the Father. That's his response. And the other disciples, the other 10, hear about James and John and getting their mum to ask him a question on their behalf. And they get angry. They get indignant. And so once again, there's disciples jostling for position, jostling for power, jostling to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus needs to teach them again about humility. And so I want to say this morning that serving equals greatness. I don't want to say it. Jesus says it. Serving equals greatness. Thanks, Gareth. There's a non-Christian way of thinking about greatness and leadership. Jesus talks about it in verse 25. The rulers of Gentiles lord it over others and impose condescending authority over people. I think the ESV translation exercise authority isn't strong enough for the Greek. I think it's more about condescending authority. It's about over-authority. Um, in the NLT, it uses, it uses this phrase, which I quite like. It says, they flaunt their authority. That's, that's the non-Christian way about thinking about leadership and authority. You lord it over others. You enforce your mastership over them. And you flaunt your authority. Jesus isn't criticising exercising authority in and of itself. He's criticising how the world exercises authority. People who bear down on those who are beneath them. And of course, lots of the problems in our society are, are caused by people who are rich and powerful bearing down on those who have less money and less power, rather than seeking to serve them and love them and lift them up. That's a worldly way of leadership, but we have to be honest, sometimes that worldly way of leadership comes into churches as well. And so if you have authority in the church, if you have leadership, again, preaching to myself, we need to be sure that we are servant leaders. Ones who seek to raise others up and encourage and lift people up, rather than bearing down and lording it over people. Because Christ proposes a better way. Servant leadership. In fact, it's not even servant leadership in this passage. It's just serving. He's just Talking about serving. In verse 27, he says, and this is strong language, isn't it? He says, be a slave. But may it be that you're so serving of others that your life is like being a slave. You're just committed to serving other people around you. This is what Christ would have of his disciples. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, I've heard this before, I've heard this sermon already, Duncan. You preached it a few weeks ago. Um, We've talked about authority, we've talked about service already in this Matthew sermon series. And you'd be absolutely right if you're thinking that, because in Matthew 18, we talked about becoming like a child and serving other people and not lording it over others. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Many who are first will be last, and those who will be last will be first. And in Matthew chapter 20, he said exactly the same thing again earlier in the chapter Many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. over and over and over again, in Matthew eighteen, nineteen, and 20, this message is coming through one time after the other, after the other, after the other. Over and over, Jesus challenges the idea that greatness is about power and authority and influence and lording it over other people. And instead, Jesus over and over and over again says greatness is serving other people. Why does he repeat this? Why does Matthew repeat it in his gospel? Why does Jesus repeat this message? And I think the answer is because power is a powerful idol. Using power to serve yourself is something that can take your heart away from following Christ. I think there will be people sat here who eagerly desire to be powerful, eagerly desire to have influence over other people. And that becomes more important than worshipping Jesus. It becomes an idol in your heart. I encourage you to examine yourself this morning. Don't assume you are immune to the influence of this idol of power. But, but say again in your heart, Lord Jesus, I want to be a servant. I want to serve you, Lord Jesus, and I want to serve the people around me. I, I, I pray that there will be a release in this church. If there's anyone who's clinging to this idol of power in their heart, that Jesus will release you from that idol now, and that you would step out <coughs> into serving others. Let's be a church where we commit ourselves to give our lives to serve others however we can. Especially if you've been given a position of some authority, whether that position is in the church or in a workplace or in a family or in a society. Use that position. Use what you've been given to serve others. My very best bosses weren't necessarily Christian. And I'm talking about secular workplaces. My very best bosses weren't necessarily Christians, but they were bosses who sought to empower me and serve me to do my job really well. Those those are the kind of workplaces that I want to go back to and work again for that boss. So if you have authority in a secular workplace, make the people you're, you're overseeing thrive by serving them. That's kind of your job as a leader, to be a servant leader. So make them do their jobs really, really well. So Jesus speaks about a cup of suffering, and then he speaks of being servants and slaves, and that's that's greatness in Jesus' eyes. And when you put those two things together, you realise this. Christians are to serve others, even at great personal cost. Sometimes serving others will cause you to endure the suffering Mm -hmm. and affliction that comes in the cup that Christians are to drink. Christians are to serve even at great personal cost. I think there's a comfortable way of serving. I'll help as long as it doesn't really cost me anything. And then there's a Christ-like way of serving. I'll help even when it costs me everything. So church, let us today in our hearts say, I want to serve in a Christ-like way. I know it's going to cost me, but I'm following my saviour. I'm going to help my neighbours. Even when it puts me out and takes up large amounts of my time, I'm going to serve my colleagues, even when it makes them look good and I don't get any credit at all. I'm going to care for people who actually need a huge amount of care and probably won't be able to give much back to me. I'm going to do the job at church that no one else wants to do and no one sees it anyway, so you don't get any credit or any encouragement. Maybe I'm going to take a step of faith and you know, buy a homeless person lunch and serve them or clothes or something that they need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to serve even when I know there's no payment in response. Maybe you want to sign up for taking Ukrainian refugees and say, I'm going to serve these people who need, desperately need help, even though it's going to be hard and impact my life. I'm going to visit someone who's lonely. I'm going to spend time to speak with someone who doesn't have friends and family around them. I'm going to help by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, even when it might cost me a bit of awkwardness, or it might be a bit embarrassing, or I might even fear losing a friend. I'm going to help. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give my life to serving, even when it costs. Why should Christians serve in this way? Why should Christians act like slaves? They are so certain-hearted. Well, the answer is in verse 28. And it's a beautiful, beautiful verse in verse 28. Why should we serve like this? Because this is how our saviour Jesus has served us. Isn't? Let me just read verse 28 again. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone had the right to lord it over people, it was Jesus Christ. He was God the Son. He was the second person of the Trinity. He had lived in it. He, he was eternal. He had no beginning. He would always existed. And he'd been in heaven with his father forever. He had every right to come down and just say, serve me. Do everything for me. I told you to do something and you do it for me. That, he could have acted that way. And he would not have been in the wrong because he's Jesus Christ. But that is not who our Lord and Saviour Jesus is. He came not to be served, but to serve. He didn't say, I'm the king, do this, do that. He said, I'm the king. I'm going to lay down my life to rescue you and to serve you and to save you. He uses the word ransom in that verse. A ransom is a price paid to release a captive. And the truth is every single one of us were captive to sin and death. But the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. He paid the price that we might be freed from the shackles of sin and freed from the chains of death. His love is so great. That he went to the cross in order to free us, in order to rescue us. His service to us is so undeserved. That's why we speak of grace and sing about grace and pray about grace. Because we don't deserve what Jesus has done for us. His service to us, we've not earned it, we've not deserved it. The price he paid, the cup he drank. So great that we cannot comprehend what he has done for us. We can, in part, start to go, wow, Jesus, thank you so much for doing that. But we can't fully get our head around this awesome sacrifice that Jesus made for us. This is Jesus, our servant king, our ransom paid upon the cross that we might be free. He came not to be served, but to serve. And that's a staggering truth. About the God whom we love and worship. Amen. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Christ. Love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And follow His example by serving others, even like a slave, even when it costs you everything. Follow Christ's example because that is how He has served you and me. And I pray for Lord Jesus, I thank you for the truth contained in verse 28, that you came not to be served, but you came to serve. It was your mission, it was your plan, it was your love that brought you to earth to rescue us who were captive to sin and death. You came to serve us, you came to save us. You're our servant king, and we're so blown away by that truth, Lord God. We're so grateful, Jesus, for what you have done for us. We know that we didn't deserve it, but we thank you that you are a gracious king and a servant king. So we praise you, Jesus. I pray our hearts now and our hearts for the rest of today will just be full of praise and worship for how you have served us. But Lord, I pray not only that, but I also pray you would change us. I pray we would take an extra step in serving the people around us today. I pray in this church, we would serve one another with the gifts that we have, with the talents that we have, with the time that we have. We would just help one another out. May we be a church that serves each other. Lord, I pray in our workplaces, we would serve the people around us. I pray in our streets and in our neighbourhoods, we would serve our neighbours. I pray in our families, we would be servants to the people around us in our families, Lord God. We want to follow your example. And I, I pray... That where there might be might have been comfortable serving in the past, Lord, we would just take that extra step of boldness and faith and, and move us into sacrificial serving, Lord God. I, I pray we would follow your example that you gave everything and that we wouldn't mind making sacrifices to serve others, Lord God. Make us more like Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we might serve others, Lord. We want to pray for our children as well, Heavenly Father. We know that they are living at a difficult time, growing up in a difficult environment to be a Christian, Lord. So grant them strength. Lord, we pray, fill them with the Holy Spirit, call them into your into faith, into belief in you, call them into your kingdom, and I pray they would stand firm in your power, believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they would grow to be men and women of God who love you and who change the environments around them by declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, bless them now and strengthen them what they have to do um, for your kingdom and for your name. May they be like Christ in serving others, we pray as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.